If you are willing and able, would you please stand this morning out of respect for God's words to us? Uh, You can follow along on the screens as I read our scripture passage on which our sermon is based this morning. Friends, these words are utterly true and given to us in love. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to say hi uh, to everyone here on campus, those joining us online this morning. Wonderful to be together for worship. If you are new with us today, I'm Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are in a series called Undeniable Witness, where we are looking at some encounters people had with Jesus after his resurrection, what has been called in the church calendar season, Easter. Uh, Many of you may may think Easter is just one day uh, on the calendar. It's actually a season in the life of the church, and we find ourselves in the Easter season. Uh, Jesus didn't just rise from the dead and ascend into hell. No, we find and we learn that he had these encounters with people after his resurrection. He's appearing to all kinds of people, not just a small group of people. Tons of people saw Jesus after his resurrection. And today we are going to focus on one of those encounters with the disciple Thomas. And I would venture to say there may be no more important encounter than all the encounters we've looked at for our modern culture than this encounter with Thomas. Uh, Through the years, Thomas has gotten a pretty bad reputation doubting Thomas. But I must confess to you this morning that I don't know where I would be in my life without this encounter with Thomas. I don't know. I needed someone who knew my doubts. I needed someone who knows my struggles with faith. Someone who's asked the same questions. Someone who's investigated the claims to these depths. I needed to know for me, Tyler, that I am not alone with these doubts. And and what I know from the research is that many of you struggle with these same doubts. Uh, Your doubts may be to the level this morning that you're intrigued by Christianity, uh, intrigued by Jesus and his life, but you still struggle to believe. You, You, like Thomas, can't just accept what you've heard from others, what others have been telling you. Maybe that's you this morning, and I want you to know that you are not alone. Uh, Others of us, at some point in our life, we've said to Jesus, Jesus, save me, uh, redeem me, uh, work in my life. But you find yourself today struggling uh, with your faith. 
uh, that you find doubt fills your mind. And I want you to know this morning that you are not alone. I read a story recently about a man named Phil. It was in a book by A.J. Swoboda, a great book called After Doubt. And in this book, he tells the story of Phil, who had recently moved to Portland. Like so many, he had journeyed from his small, rural, mid-American town that he grew up in to the big city for a new software job at a prominent firm. And Phil now found himself in Portland, a very modern, secular city. Phil met with AJ, who was a pastor at a church in Portland, Uh, and Phil shared with him his his love for Jesus, his desire to serve in the church, uh, to get connected with a group in the life of the church. Uh, Phil's zeal was real and authentic, and uh, a year went by, and Phil came back into AJ's office to see him, and Phil, in that moment, confessed to AJ that he doesn't think he was, any, he was a Christian any longer. Uh, he said this, a lot has happened in this last year. I've evolved, he said. Uh, Phil shared how he was coming to church, and, but the coming to church for him only made him homesick for what he had back in his small town. His church attendance went from weekly to monthly to non-existent. And then there was Charles. Charles was Phil's roommate. They worked together in the office. Charles grew up a Mormon, but had walked away from the faith with a high level of hostility towards religion. His doubts and questions became Phil's doubts and questions. And one of the biggest hurdles Phil had was Charles was probably the nicest guy he'd ever met, much nicer than most Christians that he had encountered. Charles gave Phil books to read and podcasts to listen to. Charles shared openly his deconversion story. Phil was amazed by Charles's kindness, but maybe even more so his intellect. He was incredibly well-read and articulate. Phil wondered, Phil wondered, is Christianity just an illusion? Is it a delusion? Is it, is it a hoax? And that's where they were, finding themselves back in that office, AJ and Phil, once again, a year later. Phil was discouraged and deflated. His questions to AJ might be some of your questions and your questions of someone maybe in your life today. Phil said this, quote, Pastor, I want to believe. I want to pray. I want to know God. I want to be a Christian. I do. I just need answers. I have all these questions, nobody to talk to. What am I supposed to do? You're a pastor. I love how he's, he thinks the pastor has all the answers. You're a pastor. What do you say to all of this? I'm not a Christian anymore, right? Am I still a Christian? Can I still be a Christian? Those are Phil's questions. Doubt. Doubt. What do we do with it? What do we do with it? Three things we need to see from our passage today. First, the power of doubt. How does it show up in our lives? Second, the place for our doubt. Where do we take it? And finally, the hope in our doubt. So let's look first at the power of our doubt. And what we see in our passage is Thomas, his ability to name his doubt. Look at verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. 
But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. What we must first see, like Thomas, there is a power of doubt working in our lives. Uh, The other disciples, uh, it tells us, saw the risen Jesus. And for some reason, Thomas was not with them. Um, But you have to imagine this scene. Uh, These guys have been together for three years. They've they've lived life in community. They've been family uh, to one another. And they come to him and they they say to him as as a family member, we've seen the Lord and, and Thomas goes buzzkill. He says, I will not believe unless I see it for myself. Friends, this is the power of doubt. And Thomas's story is the growing story of many people in the modern West. Uh, There's a philosopher named Charles Taylor, uh, and he has written many books sharing about 500 years ago. It would have been almost impossible for you to not believe in God because of the cultural framework. And now we find ourselves in the modern world, and it's the exact opposite. We live in a world where it's almost impossible to believe. Uh, that all of us find ourselves with some level of doubt in our lives because we find ourselves in a culture so shaped by secular thought, what what Taylor calls a social imaginary. We've we've been part of a culture that has taught us a current way of thinking. And so for many of us today, even as Christians, doubt has a powerful hold on our lives. Now, it may vary by race or culture or generation, But secularization and the power of doubt are alive and well in our lives. John Mark Comer says it this way. Doubt is the ambient air we breathe in the West. Uh, For some of us, this quote may be a bomb to your soul for you to know that you are not alone. Uh, For you to know that the the doubts that you feel, the questions that you have, we, we find ourselves in a culture today where those are more prevalent. And so hopefully you feel a bomb to your soul, but there are others of you. (laughs) There's at least one person this morning saying, well, well, Tyler, the reason that we have such a strong sense of doubt in our world, the reason we have that doubt is because we're actually using our brains. We've left behind these ancient superstitions, these ancient religions. Us modern people are driven by evidence and science. Maybe that's you this morning. You would not be alone. Uh, Carl Sagan, Carl Sagan, uh, he he wrote many books. You may know that name. Uh, He uh, had one book that got turned into a movie in 1997, Contact. It was a novel with uh, Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. That was one of his books. But another one of his books was called The Demon Haunted World. The Demon Haunted World. And Sagan, Sagan talks in this book about the supremacy of science for our lives. And the subtitle of the book is really uh, great. He says, uh, the subtitle is Science as the Candle in the Dark. Science as the Candle in the Dark. You can see what he's getting at here. Science will solve all of our problems. Uh, the candle in the dark, the light to the path. This is what he says. Plainly, there is no way back. Like it or not, we are stuck with science. We'd better make the best of it. When we finally come to terms with it and we finally recognize its beauty and its power, we will find in spiritual as well as in practical matters that we have made a bargain strongly in our favor. But superstition and pseudoscience keep getting in the way, distracting us, providing us easy answers, dodging skeptical scrutiny, causing casually pressing our awe buttons and cheapening the experience. Uh, 
making us routine and comfortable practitioners as well as victims of gullibility. <laughs> gullibility. Do you hear him? Sagan's imploring you. He's stop being so gullible. Stop giving into these ancient superstitions. Quit embracing these easy answers. Embrace the science. But as strong as this power of doubt is in the modern West, our passage shows us that this was a problem to the ancient people as well. That we all deal with this power of doubt in our lives. We see it in the life of Thomas. He has very strong language. I will not believe unless I examine the evidence for myself. One other passage in the New Testament that really gets at this. We see it at the end of Matthew's gospel. Uh, Jesus is about to send out what some call the great commission. He's about to send them out. Uh, He appears before his disciples, uh, the risen Christ in their midst. And and it says in that passage, some believed, but some doubted. Some doubted that that they were standing literally in Jesus's presence. And they're saying, is this real? Is this happening? Did, Did he rise from the dead? They doubted. John Calvin, who is considered by some to be a rock to the Protestant Reformation, shared even in the 1500s how the power of doubt was working in his life, how he struggled with issues about the resurrection. Listen to what he said. It is difficult to believe that bodies, when consumed with rottenness, will at length be raised up in their season. John Calvin gets your doubt. One of the greatest pillars of the Protestant church, of church history even, knows the power of doubt that has worked in his life. Uh, There's a power of doubt that exists in ancient cultures, medieval cultures, and we find it even in our modern culture today. Doubt, as Comer said, is the ambient air that we breathe. But where do we take our doubts? Where do we take our doubts? That's the second thing we need to do. Where do we take the questions that we have? We have to take them to the place for our doubt. That's the second thing we have to see. We need to doubt our doubts. And we see in our passage, uh, Thomas and where he takes his doubts. He takes his doubts right to the evidence and right to the source. Uh, Look at me. uh, Verse 27 says this. Uh, Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus invites Thomas to examine the evidence, to see his wounds, to bring his doubts to the only source that can supply the answers for you and I, friends, to doubt our doubts. But notice two verses later, uh, verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are the ones who have not seen and believe. He he, he speaks to Thomas and he says, "Uh, put your hands here, uh, see my wounds, see my scars. But then he says, blessed are the ones who have not seen. Is is this a contradiction? I I don't think it is. I think it's the beautiful work of of John's gospel uh, to highlight the eyewitness testimony that is given to us today. Uh, Look at this verse 30. This is what it says in verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life 
in his name. This verse 30 starts with now. Now. It's connecting it to our encounter with Thomas. John was selective in his historical accounts that he included in his gospel, but what he has included, he has given us so that you, by hearing them, have enough to believe that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the savior that you and I are all desperately searching for. Jesus said, Thomas, look at my wounds, see my scars. But then Jesus tells us we have all we need in these signs to believe. You can trust these eyewitness accounts as they are given to you. They are signs, Jesus says, for you. Now, I know when I say that trusting these accounts, I know that those are bold claims in our day. Trusting the Bible, trusting these accounts. But I'd like to unpack some reasons for why I believe you can trust these eyewitness accounts from Gospel of John. First, what we see is these, the resurrection of Jesus was too soon to be legend. The resurrection of Jesus was too soon to be legend. The apostle Paul wrote, started writing his letters only 20 years after Jesus's resurrection. So very early afterwards, but even contained in Paul's letters are these creeds, these creeds, they say that go back to just right after Jesus's death and resurrection that became kind of choruses in the life of the church. And Paul put them in his writing. In fact, progressive scholars, people who don't even believe in the physical resurrection, uh, historically uh, verify that those creeds actually came from very, very early after Jesus's resurrection, that they are too soon to be legends. But it's one thing for that. But how does the rumor spread? The second reason you can trust it is that Jesus's resurrection that there was too many people for it to be legends. The Christian faith exploded in the first century. It, it caught on like wildfire. I mean, one instance we see in the book of Acts, the apostle Peter stands up, he gives a sermon and 3000 people come to faith right there in that moment. That would be a great day in the life of Orangewood. But in that moment, 3000 people put their trust in Jesus. The church exploded in the first century amidst much persecution and opposition. To the point, historians who've studied the growth of the church believe that the church grew from this small group of disciples in our passage to 30 million by 350. It was too soon to be legends. There was too many to be legends. And it was also too honest to be legends. What do I mean? If you were going to make up a story, a hoax about the resurrection of Jesus, why would you leave these blemishes in the passage? Why, why would you leave these stories of doubt woven in for readers? Why leave these blemishes for the credibility? It makes no sense why you would bury those in the writing. Why wouldn't you edit those out? The reason they're there is because they're true. They actually happened. Thomas doubted just like us. But finally notice their lives were incongruent to be legends. What do I mean? It's clear that from what has happened through history, that they have watched the, the deaths of these disciples. Why would they, why would they give their life to make uh, made up stories? Historians believe that Thomas actually ventured East as far East as India to, to China, maybe possibly Indonesia to share the gospel. And historians believe that he actually lost his life in the sharing of the life of Jesus with others. In fact, historians have verified 10 out of the 12 disciples, excluding Judas who betrayed and John, who was exiled uh, later in life, 
Uh, why were there 10 people who would be killed for a hoax? Why, why would they give their life for this? It, it makes no sense unless it is true. Uh, many of you may have heard of the name Chuck Colson. Uh, he served as special counsel to President Nixon in the 1970s, and he was indicted as part of the Watergate scandal. Now, you probably heard of the Watergate scandal. He was indicted a part of the Watergate scandal, and Colson became a Christian uh, through that trial in his life. And as he looks back on the Watergate scandal in that situation, he sees that whole thing that happened with Watergate as proof for the resurrection. This is what he says. I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it wasn't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years. Absolutely impossible. Colson says their lives wouldn't match legends. Jesus invites us this morning, friends, to see his wounds, to doubt our doubts. Jesus invites you to examine these accounts. Another reason why you will need to doubt your doubts or why you should at least try to doubt your doubts is when we begin to examine our beliefs and what we hold, what we find, we are not as rational and intellectual in how we come up with the beliefs we have about life. There's always more going on to the beliefs that we hold than just simple rational inquiry. There's, there's more going on in our beliefs than we would care to admit. And I encounter many people today who will say to me, Tyler, Tyler, I wish I could believe. I like Jesus. I like Jesus a lot, but I can't get past my objections. And the argument goes something like this, Tyler, I am just too logical, too logical, too rational to be a Christian. And maybe that's you this morning. Uh, but what is fascinating is the latest empirical evidence and psychological experiments that have been done show that our current beliefs that we hold are, are, are we're, we're holding them with factors much more than just our intellect. There's more going on to your beliefs and my beliefs and our convictions than just rational inquiry. Uh, in his book, Predictably Irrational, Dan Ariely uh, shares multiple psychological experiments that he went through that prove over and over that we are not as logical and rational in the decisions that we make. There are other factors in our lives for what we come to with our conclusions. Just a few examples from the book so you capture a glimpse of this in your lives. If you're here today and you are single, looking to possibly get married someday, looking to meet someone, there's a great way to improve your chances. The data backs all this up. When you go out, wherever you're going out, I don't know where you would go out right now during COVID, but maybe after we get through this. But when you go out to meet somebody, always bring a friend with you who looks similar to you, but slightly less attractive. <laughs> now, now, don't tell your friend this. Don't tell, don't tell them this is your reason. But the data shows that we are not as calculating and logical in the choices of who we would date because we compare people to others. And not only is it we compare people to others, we compare people in close proximity to others. So there you are with your friend, 
who looks kind of like you, but not as attractive, your chances go up. You're welcome. (laughs) Now, some of you may still not believe me. So Ariely tackles the debate of all debates, an argument that goes back to the dawn of time. Are you a fan of Coke or Pepsi? The data is crystal clear. Most people prefer some version of Coke. And I know some of you are addicts. But when they do the blind test and the evidence overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly shows that people prefer the taste of Pepsi. How does Pepsi routinely get picked in the blind test, but is not your preferred beverage? It's because there's more going on with your loyalties. Ariely studied how expectations affect our results. If, if you, if you hear about a movie that got great reviews, you already instinctively believe it's a good movie. Uh, he talks about patients who expect the medicine to work, even if it's a placebo, uh, the likelihood that they will improve in their outlook is, is because it works. Ariely even tested sermons. Did you know that when he tested sermons and people's engagement levels, that people had a higher engagement level uh, and rating if the pastor or teacher wore glasses, higher rating engagement level. If the pastor appeared intelligent, the people had a higher likelihood of staying engaged during the sermon. Now this last one was completely made up, (laughs) but what we see this morning for those of us who question Christianity, who doubt the claims of Jesus, There is more going on than simple rational engagement and rejection. My question for you this morning is, are you willing to see that? Are are you willing to maybe doubt your doubts for the first time? But I know for some of us, and sadly for myself, however much I doubt my doubts, I still feel like I'm falling short. Uh, Disappointed that I don't love God the way I want to. Uh, Disappointed I'm not where I thought I would be in my journey with Jesus at this stage in my life. I'm about to turn 40 this year and I'm looking back with regret. Pray for me because I'm turning 40. Disappointed that doubt is still very much a part of my story. And I know that I'm not alone and I'm so thankful for this passage because it shows us the hope in our doubt, the hope in our doubt. That's the third thing we need to see today. Uh, despite the doubt that still clings to us like gum on our shoe, this passage gives us reason for hope right in the middle of our doubts. Why is that? Uh, Because this passage offers us the good news that only Christianity can give you. Uh, First, notice in this passage that this doubt that we are seeing in Thomas's life isn't just Thomas, but we see it in all of the disciples. Uh, Look at verse 26. It says this. Eight days later, Uh, His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with him. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Peace be with you. This passage tells us these other disciples were without Thomas. They saw the risen Jesus, and it tells us they're now in a room with all the doors locked. Now, you may be wondering, why are all the doors locked? Well, all commentators agree Uh, The reason all the doors are locked is they are scared out of their minds. Uh, They're they're fearing the Jewish leaders uh, who are about to come and either kill them or throw them in prison, but they are, they are freaking out. They are fearful of what is going to happen to them. And doesn't this just 
fill your story of your own life. Uh, at points in our lives, our faith feels vibrant and alive. Nothing can stand in our way. Uh, we say, like the disciples said earlier, we've seen the Lord. We've seen him. Uh, our head back, our shoulders, our head high, our shoulders back. But how quickly we change our perspective and our outlook becomes lock the doors. Uh, keep your voice down. We can't let them know we're here. They've already seen Jesus resurrected and they're still living in fear, living in doubt. And maybe you find yourself there today, stuck behind some wall, locked in by the walls of fear, locked in by the walls of loneliness, locked in by the walls of a general sense of being just stuck in life, by the walls of frustration, locked in by the walls of doubt. That's me, and maybe that's you this morning. But there's a hope right in the middle of whatever locked room you find yourself in this morning because Jesus doesn't show up and say, come on, guys, come on. Get it together. This is the hope in our doubt. The good news of grace is that God doesn't come to you with a rebuke, but he comes to you with a reminder Jesus tells these disciples, despite what you're facing, despite the doubts that are filling your life, he says to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Friends, this morning, God offers you this same reminder. Uh, no matter the doubt that feels like strangling your faith, uh, no matter the fears that have kept you up at night wanting to lock every door, Jesus says to you this morning, as hard as it is to believe, peace be with you. Second, notice the grace of God to Thomas. Uh, notice Jesus gives him the same word of peace. It gives him the same word. He doesn't, he doesn't come to Thomas and he say, if you can get your answer solved, if you, if you can get over your doubts, well, then peace I will give you. He declares peace right in the middle of all of Thomas's doubts. How could Jesus possibly offer this? I would like to suggest this morning it is the rumor of grace. It's the rumor of grace. It's when we receive this grace right in the middle of all of our doubts, right in the middle of all of our fears, knowing there is one who will hold us and keep us and will not let us go. That has been the story of my life. Uh, time and time again, I have thought I will just drift away from Jesus. At times when I just felt the anchor of my faith had been let loose, and I was drifting in the sea. The hope in my doubt uh, has not been my ability to hold on to Jesus, but his unwavering ability to hold on to me. Uh, to the point now that my prayer is simply this, Lord, keep me. Lord, keep me. That's all I have. And that's what makes Christianity different from every other religion in this world. See, every other religion says, get over your doubts and then you will have peace. Get over your fears and then you will have peace. Obey and then you will be accepted. Obey and then you will get peace. The good news of Christianity is right in the middle of all of our doubts, right in the middle of all of our fears, is there is a peace because of what Jesus has accomplished for you and for me and his death and resurrection. Right in the middle of our doubts, there is a rumor of grace. 
The journalist Michael Gerson uh, has written much for the Washington Post. Uh, He served um, and worked in the White House. And Gerson has struggled in his life with debilitating depression. And some of us have known that long shadow of depression in our own lives, or we have cared for people close to us who've dealt with that monster. Gerson had just been released from the hospital after another battle with depression. And he was asked to give a sermon at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And this is what he said. All of us, whatever our natural serotonin level, look around us and see plenty of reason for doubt, anger, and sadness. A child dies, a woman is abused, a schoolyard becomes a killing field. A typhoon sweeps away the innocent. If we knew or felt the whole of human suffering, we would drown in despair. Faith, thankfully, does not preclude doubt. It consists of staking your life on the rumor of grace. I can't tell you how much I love that line, staking your life on the rumor of grace. Have you done that? Uh, Gerson gets the hope right in the middle of our doubts. He gets that Christianity has never been about the amount of your faith. Christianity has always been about the object of your faith. It's not the level of our faithfulness that brings salvation. It is the faithfulness of the one who gave his life for us. Jesus says, put my hand here. Put your hand here. See my wounds. See my scars. See what I've done for you. It is when we see this peace that it comes to us even as we're walled in by fear. Even when we're walled in by doubts, even when we're walled in by insecurities, we can see a peace that comes to us right in the middle of our questions, our doubts, our uncertainties. Right in the middle of that place, we can cry out like Thomas, my Lord and my God. That we can cry out, Lord, keep me. Lord, keep me. Have you done it? Have you given your doubts to him knowing he will give you a peace right in the middle of your deepest questions He will give you a peace right in the middle of the fears that keep you up because he died for you. There is a rumor of grace. I shared earlier about Phil in my sermon, and maybe you've been here wondering what happened to Phil this whole time. And I'm sorry about that. That is what's called pastor malpractice. But there is Phil. And what did he find buried underneath all of his questions and doubts? All of his uncertainty, what was buried underneath all of that, Phil found at the foundation of his soul was that there was a God who would die for him and offer him peace right in the middle of all of his doubts and questions. A God who isn't scared by his questions, but would hold him right in the middle of them and won't let go. Jesus simply invites you and me today to that same peace. He says to us this morning, see my wounds, see my scars for you. His scars show us a completely different kind of religion. As Edward Shalita put it in his poem, Jesus of the Scars, he said this, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne, but to our wounds, to our wounds, Only God's wounds can speak and not a God has wounds, but thou alone.
but thou alone. Friends, Jesus invited you this morning to see his wounds, his faithfulness for you, his life for you. We can doubt our doubts. We can doubt our doubts because there is one who has claimed us right in the middle of them, claimed us right in the middle of all of our questions, right in the middle of all of our fears, right in the middle of all of our uncertainties, right in the middle of all of our doubts. He claims us right there and he won't let us go. He won't let us go. There's a rumor of grace. Do you hear it? Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we ask you this morning, uh, for those of us who struggle to believe, that you would meet us with your peace uh, right in the middle of all of our doubts and questions. That you would keep us, not because of the amazing measure of our faith, but because of the object of our faith, because of his wounds and his scars his life for us. Uh, God, would you allow what Jesus has accomplished to swallow up all of our doubts and give us his peace? Uh, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see this profound reality and this extraordinary offer for anybody who wants to receive the rumor of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.